0: All right, so uh, a little bit of context and background for some of you who weren't here when I <laughs> taught on Psalm 2 uh, a couple months ago. I'm teaching a Bible study in real life with a couple of friends of mine uh, in college, and we're going through the Psalms. And uh, a good friend of mine is teaching the even-numbered Psalms, and I'm teaching the odd ones. It, it, it used to be the other way around. Um but we flip-flopped in because of scheduling things and so forth. So, um, this lesson is been given before, but don't let that dismay you. That just means that the quality will be higher now that I'm giving it a second time. So, um, if you want to know why Rand, I randomly jumped in and it was like Psalm five, it's cause I had been intending to teach weekly uh, or rather bi-weekly what I was assigned to teach with my friend. Um, And I just haven't been doing that because I've been busy. So that's why we're in the Psalms. Uh, For those of you who were there for Psalm 2, you'll remember sort of the the gist of what we were going through. And it'll be a similar lesson tonight, uh, except for a different Psalm. So I want you to uh, pay close attention as we read the text and uh, take note of a couple of things. um, And I'll point them out as we go throughout the talk. But, Without any further ado, I'm going to go ahead and read the psalm. I'll read it in the King James, which is what I have in my notes, because I, you know, I I like the language of the King James, and there's no textual variations here. So um, if you'd open up to the word, uh, we're going through the whole of Psalm 5, right? Okay. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my meditation. Hearken unto the voice of my cry, my King and my God, for unto thee will I pray. My voice shalt thou hear in the morning, O Lord. In the morning I will direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, and neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight, thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing, the Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear, will I worship towards thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies. Make thy way straight before my face. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulchre. They flatter with their tongue. Destroy thou them, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against thee. But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous. With favor wilt thou compass him, as with a shield. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of our God endures forever. Thanks be to God. Tonight, we come to a prayer of David that is going to challenge all of us in some measure. There's no getting around it. This is not an easy passage to deal with because of a number of things which we'll get into. This passage, though often overlooked, actually, as I'll argue, models for us what it means to pray in a way that I think is lost on our modern ears. Firstly, a couple of notes about the text and its context. We ought to note that this prayer is made in a time of desperation. The exact occasion of this cry is not explicit from the text. Usually, you might in the Psalms, you might have an indicator that says a psalm of David when he was persecuted by Absalom, as in the case of Psalm three. There's nothing like that here, right? It's not explicitly clear from the text why David is praying this. Uh, whether the persecution he's he's suffering in this psalm is under Saul or the rebellion of his son Absalom, or even just is just given in the in the course of the various wars that David fought against Israel's enemies. Uh, which of those causes gave rise to this psalm is not certain. Although I'd venture to say that one of the first two, so either the persecution under Saul or the rebellion of Absalom, is more likely. At any rate, this psalm is well-ordered. It's structured around the parallels between David and his opponents. David, in this psalm, is calling on God to judge his case, and so he, like a lawyer, presents his interlocutors before God, holding their character up in comparing it with his own, and then comparing both him and his interlocutors to God, right? He does this in order that he could prevail upon God to cast down his enemies, and even beyond this, David entreats with God by showing uh, God that his enemies, that David's enemies, are in fact God's enemies, and this is very important to the message of this psalm. We see in verses 4 through 5 and verses 9 through 10, David's presentation of his enemies as wicked and deceitful men. And with these strong denunciations, David presents them before God. He's not exactly trying to put forth the best picture of them, right? But that's not a bad thing in this case because they are actually, you know, bloody and deceitful men. In verses 7 through 8 and 11 through 12, David presents himself along with the righteous with a wonderful, but as for me, or but I, as your translation might have it. And this pattern of contrast provides for us the necessary framework to understand this prayer of David. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of these comparisons, which form the backbone of this psalm, we should take a look at the prayer itself, turning our attention uh, to the hows of this prayer before we examine the whys, because... The prayer starts off with a unique sort of explanation of how David is praying. First, I want to note that this is a groan of David unto God, right? In the King James, which I've read to you, it's rendered meditation, right? He says, uh, "He says, uh, let's me... show here my voice in the morning." Oh, yeah. Verse one: Give ear to words of the Lord. Consider my meditation. And this means something in the Hebrew uh, along the lines of to mutter or to groan. Uh, And I think that, and I only mention this underlying language because it's the same word that you see used in Psalm 1, where David says that the righteous, quote, meditates on God's law day and night. So from this use of this word, we can learn two things. Firstly, to pray to God like David does here is to do so from the depths of our being. It's a groan, it's not a superficial. You know this comes from a real place in David, and so our our prayers are to be heartfelt, but you know, given the use of this word as a meditation, to pray as David prays here is to do so thoughtfully and intentionally. This is not just a for all of the desperation that's really evident in the psalm, it's not just off the cuff, right it's not just um." Him spewing out whatever comes into his mind. This is a very thoughtful and, and intentional prayer. And so our prayers ought to be this thoughtful as well. So while these are David's groanings and David's prayers and David's cries, it's also worth noting that the prayer is not merely personal. At the beginning of the psalm, David assigns the psalm to the choir master as the little indication at the top of the text. Will have you, which mean that, means that this was meant for congregational singing. Now, David, as a king, in addition to personally making this petition before God, also makes it on behalf of Israel. And so it's most fitting that God's people then would sing the song that David wrote because David is their representative. What is true of David's pleas here is, can also and must also be true of the prayers of the church, which is, as Galatians 6.16 says, the Israel of God. And the church must petition God to uphold her cause with exactly the kind of vigor and dynamic energy and strength that David does here. The Psalms are such a unique gem in the crown of Scripture because they convey a range of human emotion uh, that is not comparable to any writing in in the world. right? And so... At, as such, they're going to convey emotions to us that are not familiar because they're, they're covering such a broad range. But we have to learn to familiar, familiarize ourselves with the language of the psalms and the emotions of the psalms once again. The church needs to learn again to sing like the psalmist sings, to sing like a people that have enemies. For we know, quote, that the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and violent men take it by force. That's Matthew eleven twelve. 12. Yes, it is true that we are to love our enemies, but this is very different than not having enemies. In our day, we have a tendency to de-emphasize this antagonistic aspect of the scriptures, that there's an antithesis between the seed of the woman, the seed of the serpent, right? Darkness and light, good and evil. Uh, and we, do, we de-emphasize these things both in the spiritual and in the physical plane, but this will not do... If we really want to be a people characterized by an unashamed adoption of all that the scripture teaches, we really see at length what this means in more, in more detail with this psalm. But just let us suffice for now to note that this psalm, far from being some kind of awkward or unwelcome passage in the scriptures, is meant as a pattern for us, right? It's given to the congregation to sing. The people of God are meant to emulate these prayers of David to identify with them, to be, um, to take them on as part of their heritage. Uh, so we'll get into a little bit of what that means more. Another peculiarity, at least to our tastes, present in the psalm is how David uh, quote directs or arranges his prayers before God. Uh, and I'll, I promise, last Hebrew word thing. I'm not gonna read you the actual Hebrew but I I went into lexicon. Um, the word in the Hebrew here, uh, and, I, and I, again, I only include this because I think they're helpful. I I, <laughs> I don't think it's good to try and slam references to the original languages and where they're not useful. Um, but anyway, the Hebrew word here literally means uh, to arrange or to set an order, and that's um, he says, in the morning, I direct my prayer unto thee, and will look up, right? And so we see this word to direct or to arrange uh, and it's used to describe arranging sacrifices on the altar so you could see genesis 22 9 where abraham sacrifices isaac uh, or is going to do so you could see exodus 44 there's a passage there that's about the arrangement the intentional arrangement of items on the table before the ark of the covenant it's very important uh, both of these instances represent arrangements that are meaningful, premeditated, and anything but haphazard, right? So this leads to what may be, for some of us, a surprising lesson that from David arranging his prayers to God, right? Spontaneity is not the mark of true authenticity, and here's what I mean by that. We live in a culture where the search for the authentic or real me has reached a fever pitch, and so what could be more authentic than spontaneous, off-the-cuff outbursts of our emotion to God, <laughs> right? And so this psalm shatters that paradigm. It turns it completely on its head. David prepares his prayer. Now, he, again, he's under distress. He's in persecution. He's suffering, right? But he still lays his prayer out just as meticulously as the priest would arrange and lay out the items on the altar before the Ark of the Covenant. Right? He prays this carefully before God. He gives it, as you can see, obviously in the text, its own rhetorical structure. It has its own meter and theme. And so, I want to challenge you that we should do the same. Right? Now, suppose further that David... Uh, and this is where we get into a little bit of speculation, uh, is maybe he wrote this prayer out, right, long beforehand. So he prays this prayer, he has this prayer written out, and he has it ready for him in his time of need. I think that we, ought, at any rate we ought to do the same as David does here. Our, our prayers should be carefully composed. They shouldn't be, um, They obviously should be authentic, as, as we noted earlier, but authenticity is not equal to spontaneity or, you know, random outbursts, right? A Prepared and carefully worded and thoughtful prayer is just as real, if not more real, than anything that you can say off the cuff, right? And pleasing to God. It's a pleasing sacrifice to him, right? So I think that we ought to do the same as David here, carefully composing our prayers before the God of the universe. In this regard, there's a lot of help available to you, Guess what? From the Bible, the scriptures, you have the Lord's Prayer, you have this psalm, and many others. And even the Christian tradition has stuff available to you this way. Reading the prayers of others, as weird as this may sound, can help you learn to pray for yourself. I really can commend to you the Valley of Vision, which is an excellent uh, book of prayers collected from Puritans and nonconformists. Who They're, they're really beautiful uh, there's another volume of a similar nature called "Piercing Heaven," which I have, and I I pray some of those prayers. Uh, those are very helpful and enlightening. Uh, and you know, there, they, you know, there's uh, the Anglicans have uh, the Book of Common Prayer, uh, which you know compiled in 1662, uh, and that's also wonderful. I, I've read prayers from there. I have them in a devotional that I have, um, uh, which is called "Be Thou My Vision." It's a uh, a devotional centered around liturgy, but that's neither here nor there. But wherever you get them from, whether you get it from the Bible or you write your own prayers out beforehand, uh, it isn't wrong to, it isn't somehow less authentic to God for you to you know, make a plan about your prayer, or to, to plan it out beforehand, to say, this is what I'm going to say, and then say it. Um, that is just as authentic as you know, anything you could put forth. So, the last observation I can make about David's prayer here, and we'll get into the, you know, actual whys of the psalm, is, and it's probably the most obvious, is that in verse 3, David says that he offers his prayer unto God, quote, in the morning. And so, this is important. It has a twofold meaning. Firstly, David literally prayed in the morning uh, before his day began and other business was attended to. Or this could also be taken to mean that David always turns first God, so to speak, in the morning of whatever situation laid before him. That's a little bit more of a stretch, but the principle holds, right? So God is always the first thing we go to. He's always the—we go in the morning of our struggles, or we just go in the morning before anything else happens in the day. The first person we talk to is God. In both of these respects, you know, regardless of which one you're thinking of, we should emulate David's example. There's nothing better than to turn our hearts towards God first thing in the day, and to flee to the Lord for refuge at the first sign of distress, or to give him thanks at the first sign of blessing. So as we see that this is how David prayed, we should take some notes. From just these three verses, we've already learned that one, we should cry out to God from our hearts. Uh, Two, that we should that the psalm is for singing, and so we should sing psalms like this. Three, that we should arrange our prayers. That's a, that's a good thing to do. Uh, four, that we should pray in the morning, literally. And five, that we should go to God first, so go in the morning of whatever situation, figuratively as well. So that, that is something I – those are some things I wanted you to note about the psalm itself. Now we can go onward into the actual petitions themselves. I am picking back up in the psalm, quote, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. For there is no faithfulness in their mouth. Their inward part is very wickedness. Their throat is an open sepulchre. They flatter with their tongues destroy thou them O god let them fall by their own counsels cast them out in the multitude of their transgressions for they have rebelled against thee so here we have david presenting his enemies before god and he does so plainly and i want you to note the central theme of this prayer is not though um so david prays that the enemies would be destroyed right but he doesn't do so because those enemies are David's enemies. But rather, David makes the case that God should cut off these men because they're the kind of men that God hates. Hence the title of the, the lesson, the kind of men that Yahweh hates. And I want to start uh, diving into this section by uh, quoting a cliche that you probably all heard. Um, God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. Now, qualifications first. In Christ Jesus, this is completely true. For believers, God takes away their iniquity and he nails it to the cross. Colossians 2, 14-15. He kills the sin and he does let the sinner walk away justified. But, this is not true of unbelievers. Here in the text, that notion is shattered, right? We must understand that God doesn't damn lying to hell in the abstract as though you know lying as an abstract concept is going to hell no he condemns liars he doesn't damn adultery to gehenna he condemns adulterers god's not mad at sin in some kind of abstract nuanced way (laughs) but he's mad at particular sinners who in real time in real space transgress his law and he has every right to be mad Right. Uh, consider Psalm eleven five the The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked one and the one who loves violence. Or, you know, going back to the, the bit about hell, Revelation 21, 8. Uh, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, uh, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, before we go too far off, uh, we should keep in mind that Matthew five uh, does exist. You know, Matthew five forty four specifically, starting there, we can turn there and read together. Uh, ye have heard it said unto thee, uh, unto you, that thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be. Of your father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, then what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what more do ye do than others? Don't even the publicans do that? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father which is in heaven is perfect. So, our first inclination when we get a text that says, God hates. The bloody and deceitful man. He's going to destroy them that speak leasing. He hates workers of iniquities. You know, he he hates the wicked one. And then it says he makes his sun to shine on the just and the good alike, huh? <laughs> right? Or, or we're told to love our enemies. So we see in in sort of our folly a contradiction here. At least I know that I did when I was looking at the text. uh Because if God makes his sun to shine on the good and the evil alike, surely he must love everyone, right? John 3.16 says he loves the world, right? If that's so, how could it be that God would hate certain people? So it may look like a contradiction to our eyes, but it's not the case. Firstly, the type of love in view here is important. The type of hatred that's being talked about here is important. When we say that God loves, and this is going to get into some technical theological language, so bear with me. We can mean that in two ways. We can mean that either by way of God's common grace, which is the term, which is sort of his general love for creation as a creator, or his special grace, God's love for the elect as a savior. This sort of hatred seen here in Psalm five on God's part, is not the first kind. It's not the common grace kind where, you know God somehow is uh, hates hates these people because they're human (laughs) that that doesn't jive it doesn't make sense and so if that was the case we should see we should be wary but that's not what it means this this kind of hatred is the kind of hatred that flows from his holiness and his perfect righteousness the sort of hatred that enables god to rightly judge the wicked the opposite if you wanted to think about it like this, the opposite of the kind of hatred described in the psalm would be God's covenant love for his people. The Hebrew chesed, right? It's a special, it's usually translated steadfast love or loyal love. This love for his people, the elect, on whom he's poured out his mercy and he's saved them from being children of wrath, right? Uh, if you go to Ephesians 2, uh, 1 through 6, it says... And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had our conversation in times past, the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, For his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us, or made us alive together with Christ. By grace ye have been saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so I want you to see in Psalm that this connection, or this antithesis rather, between God's hatred of the wicked and his love for the elect is seen. In verse 7, uh, David says, but as for me, I will come into thy house, what? In the multitude of thy mercy. So David acknowledges that it's not his own righteousness that makes him different than those those men whom he says God hates, right? But the mercy of God. So when we read here that God hates workers of iniquity and he loves David and he's merciful to them, we shouldn't think, man, God hates those evildoers uh, that David is somehow saying, rather, I should say, Man, God hates those evildoers, but he doesn't hate me because I'm so great. Because I'm David. And I'm, I'm great, man. And I'm good because I'm, I'm just great. And so, God doesn't hate me. No. He says that it's the multitudes of God's mercies, right? So, what we should see in here, that the hatred in the psalm is in regards to the special grace of God. Either as it's withheld, in the case of the bloody and deceitful men spoken of here, or as it's bestowed. In the case of David, you know, David is only God. Uh, if it were not for God's grace, David would be in their shoes. You know, we, we know that all have sinned and all have fallen short. So you can sort of see this and understanding just to solidify this connection for you that God's creating love. Uh, just associate that with this common grace. Associate it with valuing the image of God, human rights, right, equal protection for humans under the law, and this kind of creating love. Uh, because it's, cre- it's about creation, is naturally temporal. You know, God's eternal, creation is finite. Um, so this love has a shelf life, right? But God's redeeming love, his special grace, his salvation, his restoration of the image of Christ in us as believers, our freedom in Christ, and our life everlasting, these are eternal and unchanging. And it's that that's being treated of here. this leaves us back with Matthew 5. And so, trying to understand that passage, the conclusion here is obvious. Jesus is commanding us here to love our enemies, quote, "Eh, because God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and he sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. So this is clearly a manifestation of God's common grace. And so, we are not to be without common grace to our enemies. If God is not without this common grace, then... Uh, We should not be either. (laughs) So it's pretty simple, right? Uh, The enemies of God still eat. They still grow crops and they still get rain. They even draw breath every day. Despite their rebellion, God is gracious enough to allow the wicked to live. Uh, This sort of thing is not to be sneezed at. I, I know that we can often sort of have that approach. Right, but we have to emulate God in this regard, because Jesus says that we may be the children of our Father, which is in heaven, so you know that God is patient with the wicked, so we should be too uh, and I know that I'm bad at this i'm <laughs> I'm bad about being uh calm or gentle or um patient with people who are who are wronging God, who are doing evil things, and you know sometimes it's right to be mad, but you you have to keep in mind that if God shows them grace, you have to as well, right? Uh, you know that God uh, suffers, as Romans 9 says, with much patience, the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, verse Romans nine twenty two. So what greater marker of God's creatorly love could there be? And yet here in this passage in Matthew, and here whenever it's talked about you know, God's love for the world in general or anything like that, we're not talking about his covenant love, his hased which he's poured out on his people who are chosen in Jesus Christ before the foundation of the world, like Ephesians 1.4 says, this God has withheld from the wicked and the reprobate this kind of love. And he's done so rightly, right? God's not morally doing a bad thing because he doesn't show mercy. If God had to show mercy to everybody, right, if it was an obligation, that would no longer be mercy. Because if he has to do it, it's not mercy. Mercy supposes a judgment, and it's a call on the per- the call lies with the person who is having mercy to decide whether he does that or not. And so that's on God. He can condemn, and he does condemn, and he does so rightly. But this, and while God never dehumanizes people or spurns them, or or uh, any of that kind of thing, he does hate them, and rightly so for their wickedness, and. For if you were a believer and you were once a sinner, which we all were, you were on the other end of that too before the grace of Christ Jesus to you. And God's just to do this because he is the standard of perfection and holiness. He has every right to be mad. And I want to hammer this home. So, likewise, if we're trying to emulate God, no, we shouldn't dehumanize our opponents. We should never cease from showing courtesy. We can feed them we god feeds them we can be patient with them god's patient with them in this regard we should despise no human being i think this is what it means or at least a part of if not the whole thing what it means to love our enemies but i want you to understand that you can call upon god in a good conscience you know appealing to his justice to cast down evildoers because there's nothing more right than asking god to carry forth his justice and so this is what david goes ahead and does Right. Note that David's imprecations, again, never reach beyond God's justice. He wishes no inhumane, or unjust, rather, penalty on their head. Instead, he prays that they would, quote, fall by their own devices. And he asks God to cast them out, again, as I said in the beginning, not because they rebel against David, but rather because they've rebelled against God there's no hint of vigilante justice in David's pleas. He knows God's word and he keeps his prayers against his enemies within the confines of that word. And so should we. Don't go off guns blazing with, you know, you feel like you're justified in imprecatory psalms. Do it within the confines of the word. Remember that these curses are reserved for the bloody and deceitful man, them that speak leasing, which is a way of saying they lie, Right. The wicked, like we're talking about the bad guys, not not just oh, this guy hurt my feelings. Time for an imprecatory psalm. No, don't do that. (laughs) I think it goes without saying. So, there's no vigilante justice with imprecatory prayers. Um, but we, uh, but rather, and going back to the text, uh, the prayers that they would fall by their own devices, we see this kind of prayer uh, being answered all throughout the scriptures. The enemies of God falling on their own swords or dying by their own you know traps that they set you see it in places like esther where haman is hanged on the gallows that he built to kill mordecai so that's a very literal fulfillment of this kind of prayer we uh see it in the proverbs it says that the one who digs a pit for another will fall in it himself i don't have the reference up i just ad-libbed that but um we even, surprisingly, in the New Testament, see this kind of attitude <laughs> in the New Testament, right? Well, right, but Paul uh prays imprecations in Galatians five against the Judaizers. And he wishes, and he says, this is what he says in effect, that uh they would get on with it, because they're they're trying to get people to be circumcised, and cut off the whole thing. Um uh, let's see. So that's, And that's Galatians 5.12, i got the reference up there. You see, you see the same kind of imprecation where John the Baptist refers to the Pharisees as, quote, a brood of vipers in uh, Matthew 3.7. Uh, and you, you even see it, and this was the most surprising one for me, uh, and it stuck with me the most, in 2 Thessalonians 1, 5-12. I'll go ahead and read that. Uh, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which ye also suffer seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense trial and tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, uh, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that do not know God and that do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with an everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed in that day. Wherefore, we also pray for you, that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith's power, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul even says, Hey, you know, it's a righteous thing with God to pay back the trouble that these persecutors have paid to you, right? And that's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction in terms that is 100% right and, up- and uphold and consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So I exhort you that praying against the enemies of the church, and again, real enemies, not just they made my feelings hurt. Like We're talking not, um, you know, some news guy on TV who's, Maybe saying some things that we don't it doesn't make us feel good. We're talking about the kind of people who murder children in the womb. and we're talking about abortionists. We're talking about people who mutilate said children out of the womb, right? <laughs> these are the kind of people that are on the receiving end of these prayers, not uh, not just your everyday schmo, right? We you, you really want to get the bad guys. So if you do this and again, according to the word of God and in harmony with His will, this is not contrary to the message of Jesus, but it's fully in line with it. And so along those lines, we move on in the psalm, and we can just have a few quick things about David's description of these wicked men. We know that they speak leasing, uh, and that's just an old-fashioned, fancy way of saying that they're liars, right? That's the, <laughs> God hates lying, right? We see that their throats are an open grave, and this is a really strong indictment. Uh, if their throats are the open grave, that means that death is inside them, because inside a tomb is dead things, and when they open up their mouths, the stench comes out. Right? So that is the insult that's, that's being put here. Their throats are an open grave. you know. Just like when Jesus calls Lazarus out of the tomb, he tells him to unroll it. He's like, man, Jesus, don't do that. He's, he probably stinks. That is what the words, of the wicked, are like. And uh, this is also tied directly to flattery. So, um, we know that they're also duplicitous and that they're deceitful, and that they not only you know shed blood, but that they love the shedding of blood, the bloody and deceitful man. So these characteristics are what most obviously condemn the wicked here, and so we ought to cultivate a hatred of these qualities. But not only when we see them in others, but especially when we see them in ourselves, because they are still there. We should learn to hate these sins. Uh, everywhere we see them, and that includes in us. So we must learn to love what God loves and to hate what God hates. So enough of all that down stuff. That's when you got past it. Ooh. <laughs> you breathe easy for a second. Now we see who David is, right? And I already said that David doesn't contrast himself with his enemies by going on about how great he is. But rather he says, quoting again, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship towards thy holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in thy righteousness because of mine enemies, and make thy way straight before my face. And skipping down a little bit. But let all them that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let also them that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, wilt bless the righteous, with favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. David says that what sets him apart from these wicked men is nothing less than the multitudes of God's mercies. And there we find what makes David, and I hope me, and I hope you, and all of us, so different from these bloody, deceitful men that we've been discussing. David would have been one of those men too, if it weren't for God. And so David is careful not to boast. Before the Lord in this regard, but rather humbles himself and rests upon God's mercy. Note too how this mercy of God expresses itself in David's life. He says that he goes up into God's house. The key mercy in question that David has received here is access to God Himself through worship. And so, if David received this mercy in his day, surely we've received it ourselves a hundred times more. Because our access to God is greater than anything David could have imagined, because we have the cross, and we have the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. David also humbly asks God to make his way straight, further demonstrating how little he relies upon himself, and how much he daily needs the graces of God. And again, I can't stress this enough. David is differentiated from the wicked, not by anything inherent in himself, but purely by God's mercy. And so he asked God to make his way straight, which further indicates the imperfection of David's way. If, if his way is already straight, he doesn't need it to be made straight, right? If you were looking for the gospel in this text, and you should, you should do that with every passage of scripture you come across because it's there. It's this. In the multitude of God's mercies, we can come into his house. We can draw near the throne of grace. If you repent and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's marvelous light. He does save sinners, and uh, it's as it said earlier in Ephesians, children of wrath. Even if you fit the the bill, if anyone's here, you know, in the hearing of my voice, and they fit the bill of these people at David's era, oh, yeah, I kind of fit in with that, which I hope you don't, you know, and I. Uh, but we all kind of do in some way. I mean, who? which one of us is not a liar? But hope, because if you're that guy, God has mercy. He has a special kind of mercy for those who believe. And this is good news, that we can come into his house, that we can draw near to the throne of grace. And that's Hebrews 4.16. The gospel is that god allows sinners into his home and he opens the door to them wide and he lets them come in and crash wherever they want and he opens the fridge up for them and he says help yourself to what's inside right he saves them out of darkness and into light so when you think in your mind the contrast here in this psalm between the righteous and the wicked don't think of a difference that stems from some sort of these people are inherently superior than others that's antithetical to the gospel of grace. And it ought to be shunned. Because, As we know, all sin falls short of the glory of God. And it's Romans 3.23. And God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's Romans 5.8. The solution to our problems is never to minimize our sin or God's hatred of sinners, but rather to magnify his grace that he would save such a people as these. And so this we see is how david differs from his interlocutors now how are we to respond to these things that's all great what am i what am i supposed to do verses 11 through 12 give us a clear answer if all the things i said above are true of you in in that you receive god's mercy mercy that you are led in his righteousness if you fear and you worship in his house then you know uh from the psalm that um it says, let all them that love thy name be joyful in thee. So this is the thing I want you to leave with if you're a believer, is this, that um, you should rejoice at all times. There's nothing more plain in the Bible. Philippians 4, 4-5 through says, to rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your considerate spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. All throughout the book of Philippians, we can go into this great length and I have in the past. You can find my studies on this uh, chapter of Philippians 4 in our archives, uh, Paul repeatedly tells the church at Philippi to rejoice. He does it over and over again. And this, uh, this repetition is not meaningless, but serves to emphasize and to just really hammer home the importance of joy in the Christian life. As a result of this joy, the believer can't help, but, uh, and again, I'm just kind of recovering some ground. I covered my talk on Philippians 4, uh, but the believer can't help but reveal when he has this joy considerate spirit towards others as the passage indicates we also see that this joy and considerate spirit are the result of god's nearness and so it should be how could we not rejoice that though we were separated and estranged from god kept from him by our sin at an infinite distance we've been brought near to him by the death of jesus christ on the cross when jesus died we're told in the gospels that the veil of the sanctuary was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth shook and the rocks were split it's Matthew uh, 27, 51. The veil in the temple separated worshipers from the holy of holies inside where God's presence dwelt. It served as a physical representation of how we are separated from an infinitely holy God by our sins. And when Jesus died, it was torn from top to bottom. It was torn from above because God's the one who did the work of tearing it. Nothing that we have done or ever could do could ever veil that, ever tear that veil. And give us full and unrestricted access to God, only christ's work on the cross was enough to wash us and make us presentable before the holy one. Now just think about this: david who who extols the virtues of god's mercies here, he didn't have this blessing, he didn't have unrestricted access to the throne of God. and can it be that we, heirs of such a blessed hope, should neglect to rejoice because of it? Just think. That your sins were scarlet, you've been washed white as snow. Though you were an enemy of God, he has made you reconciled to himself, if you're in Christ Jesus. Christian, there's no way you cannot rejoice at this. So, join with David in praising God, and let nothing take your joy away. If Christ himself tells you that, you know, your loss is gain, what could possibly take away that joy? Just let it always flow like a river, let it pour itself back out into the sea of praise don't let the joy stew inside of you let it burst forth this joy we're talking about is not some kind of bodiless and vaporous gas that doesn't affect you in real life joy is meant to do something right jesus died for you you can afford to crack a smile right the veil was torn in two and you've unlimited access access to the father you can laugh you know that alex jones meme where he goes, it's like, the elites don't want you to know this, but I think it's the ducks or something are free, but but it's kind of cringe, but, you know, the elites don't want you to know this, but joy is free. I've rejoiced in the Lord seven times already today, right? (laughs) Sing the Psalms, right? Learn to sing this Psalm. I can put out links. I can give you resources and let the joy resound. Like David, God has heard our cries. The Lord has given ear to our supplication, and He surrounds us on all sides. So let us not cease from being joyful. And it's with that thought, I think I want to leave us off tonight. These songs of David are meant to strike at the heart, and I could never make that happen. I can, however, pray that the Lord will use this text to strike at your heart, to cause you to more deeply rely on Him, to fly to Him more often in prayer, to love what He loves, to hate what He hates and to rejoice in all of it. And it's in that spirit that we now turn to the Lord in prayer. If you'll go to the Lord in prayer with me. Lord, you have assured us in your word that the grass may wither and the flower may fade, but your word endures forever. This word you've given us tonight also is enduring, and I pray that you might continue to endure, uh, to let it endure within our hearts. Deliver your church from the enemies that surround her and frustrate the plots of the wicked against her. Lead her foes even in repentance and faith to you. Lord Jesus, we know that you never tired of defender, of defending your bride. Humble us to rely more and more on your mercies every day, and lead us ever onward in your righteousness. I pray that these words of yours, expressed in the in the words of your servant David, would teach us how to pray, that they give us hope in your protection, and that they cause us to never stop rejoicing. Go with us as we leave from this place and watch over us always. Jesus' name.